I am sure there are many things that my family do not like about me. Habits and little little oddities that they just don't like. But there's this one I'll tell you about. I often will be reading something or watch this short video, and I'm so passionate about it, I have to share it with, you know, someone in the family. And so I'll gather them around, we got to watch this, and then we'll start watching this. And then when the person or whatever's happening in the video, uh, whenever that great insight comes or something I think's important, I'll pause it and I'll say, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And this is why that's important. And then, okay, let's keep watching. And then, you know, we'll go 20 more seconds. And then there's another thing I really like. I'll pause it. Say, did you hear that? And then without fail, they will say to me, Dad, just let us watch the whole thing. Stop pausing it. But I just want to make sure they get it all. I just want to get it all. Well, that's often how I preach. It's often how I teach. I will have, we'll, we'll walk through a passage and then we'll just be pausing along the way. And I imagine there are these times where you're like, can we just read the whole thing? Just, can we just read the whole thing? Like uninterrupted. We, just, we, we might like you, but we'd like to hear the whole passage uninterrupted. Well, today, those of you that are like that, you get your wish. Today, we're going to read Psalm 5 with no pausing. No pause. Okay, Mary. All right. I see it. We have someone clapping. All right. That's it. That's it. Because of that, I'm going to pause just to pause. I'm just going to say something like we're pausing. Profound thought. Profound thought. And then we'll keep going. All right. Psalm 5, uninterrupted. And what I want to do is I want to take Psalm 5 and unpack it. And we're going to watch this one theme. We're going to watch this one theme just play out across the whole song. Psalm 5. See the subheading here. We're going to go with the subheading today. Uh, there's not many questions here, this uh, being a psalm of David. So this is for the director of music, for Pipe, the psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help. My King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, come into your house. In reverence I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from my mouth can be tr- from not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O Lord. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. That's Psalm 5. Right at the start of the psalm, you see a cry. This is a prayer, a cry, a prayer. Actually, in the Hebrew, this, this, this word, this wording for a cry, this this, um, the language here of uh, crying out actually is a nonverbal cry. 
So there's something here in the prayer that he can't even get out in words. And maybe only later he's been able to pen them by the inspiration of the Spirit. But this is a cry that, that the God of Israel can hear even when all the words aren't articulated correctly or even in a way that's understandable. And I just hope that's an encouragement. Sometimes when you pray, sometimes when we pray, we pray sometimes without, without having the right words. And so be encouraged that God hears that cry. But here David cries out, and for the first time he calls the God of Israel his king. So this is something that comes up throughout the Psalms. At Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the king of Israel. So here's this first time David references Yahweh as king. And so there's this deep cry, this deep this deep um, uh, um, groaning, this lament, the NIV translates it here, to God because of a situation in front of David. And that situation, it lays out this massive theme that we watch from beginning to end of the Scriptures. It's the fact that there are two kinds of people in the world. Two. The whole psalm's framed by this reality. There are two kinds of people in the world. The wicked and the righteous. There it is. You might have Marlins fans and Braves fans. That's fine. That's fine. But when you get down to it, in reality, at its most basic level, there are two kinds of people. And, and David here frames the prayer around that reality. There's the wicked and there's the righteous. So we need to take a look. Just let's dive in here. I want to take a look at how he describes the wicked. So we'll put it up on the screen. We're going to just highlight a few things in these verses. Let's take a look. Five and six. So they're arrogant. They do wrong. They tell lies. They're bloodthirsty. And they're deceitful. So this is a people that are always working, always working to live outside of reality and get as many other people to do the same. And actually in the process, there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain. There's a lot of spilling of blood in the midst of this as well. Go on to verse 9 and 10. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their hearts filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues tell lies. Second time, we hear uh, David references them as people who tell lies. Think of it as a people who live by lies. They're not tethered. They're not anchored to reality. And then they have rebelled. In the end, they have rebelled against God. This is a people who want to live like they are the center of the universe. They're the most important thing in the world, and what they think and what they feel must be right. It is real. And so they will live disconnected from the reign of God because they've got it all together. This is a people who are arrogant, deceitful. They live by lies. They are disconnected from reality. Those are strong words. And this isn't just a people that behave this way. This is a people that are this way. Their heart filled with malice. Don't trust anything that comes out of their mouth. This is that kind of people. Interestingly, this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of description come up in the Psalms. I mean, we're only five Psalms in. But do you remember, just a few weeks ago, we unpacked Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 gives this as the opening picture of the state of the world. Here it is, Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2. Why do the nations conspire, the psalmist writes, and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up, the rulers band together. 
against the Lord and His anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Reality is that there really are limitations in the world. You are not king. There really is a reality that is that, that, that is in front of us that you just can't get around. There are boundaries. There are limitations. There actually is a law that humans have to live by. But the kings of the earth, those who are wicked, they say, we will throw off those boundaries. We will remove those limitations. We will reject God's reality. And we will do things the way we want to do them. In short, we are the center of the universe. And we reject the king of the world. This, this situation of the wicked rejecting, re, uh, rejecting reality, living by lies, rebelling against the God of the universe, this is nothing new. So as David cries out in this lament, this groaning, as he looks and sees the situation around him, he sees very much the same thing that the psalmist in Psalm 2 is describing. He sees a group of people rejecting reality, living by lies, a people deceitful, trying to be the center of the universe. And he calls out to his God to do something. And David knows the fate of these people. He describes it in 5 and 6, verse 5 and 6. Here's what happens. When you disconnect yourself from reality, you rebel against the God who created you, well, here's, here's your fate. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You destroy those who tell lies. Now, sometimes we think of this as God being just always active in, in, in this process of destruction. Well, this isn't, just, this isn't always the case. Often destruction, destruction is, is just letting things go the, their, natural, their natural way. You cut a branch off a tree... Its fate is now destruction. Guarantee it every day of the week. Cut a branch, it will die. You take something from its life source, it will die. And the Bible has a lot of different words for that. And here David describes it as not being able to stand in God's presence. Well, another way of describing not being able to stand in God's presence is destruction. So here's how I want to summarize verse 5 and 6. And then I just want to watch that, this summary, play out in two other passages. Take a look. Here's what, here's what I think is happening. Those who try to live away from God, those who live by lies, reject reality, well, they will be uprooted and destroyed. That's just logical. Like, this isn't just some statement of some deep spiritual truth. No, it's just logical. You cut something away from its life source, it will die in any area of life. All right. So this is not the only time we've seen this. Let's go back to Psalm 2. Remember those rulers, those kings of the earth that have rebelled against Yahweh as anointed? Well, here's their fate. At the end of Psalm 2, verse 11 and 12, Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for His wrath can flare up in a moment. Then that famous psalm that sets the stage for the rest of the psalms, Psalm 1. We saw the same thing in the first psalm that launches the book of psalms. Psalm 1, 4, and 4 through 6. Not so the wicked, they are like shaft that the wind blows away. 
Well, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Two kinds of people. There's the wicked and there's the righteous. The one is in the presence of God where life flows like a a everlasting fountain, and then there is the wicked who have been separated from the fountain of life, and they will meet destruction. They have disconnected themselves from reality. They live by lies. They are full of deception. Malice fills their heart. And you can see the descriptions go on and on and on. And they will be destroyed. Two different kinds of people. Now, at this point, as th- at this point, I, th- I don't feel too I don't feel too threatened in any of what we've said so far. I tend to think that as a Christian, I, I'm doing just fine. I'm with Jesus, all is well. But then there's a twist. The twist is that I'm numbered among the wicked. Did you know you are numbered among the wicked? You see, there's this thing, there's this thing about Psalm 5 that we learn later on in the New Testament that tips us off to this reality that I don't get to sit back and enjoy all the benefits of the righteous. Actually, I'm in the camp of the wicked. So are you. You see, the Apostle Paul builds this argument in his letter to the Romans. So he he wrote this, he wrote this real long letter. We call it Romans. And in the book of Romans, he begins, in the first three chapters, he begins developing and building a sweeping argument to say that no human being is left unaffected by sin. And part of the way that he will build this argument near the end, in chapter 3, Romans 3, one of the ways he will build towards the conclusion of his argument that all people have been infected with sin is he will actually quote from Psalm 5. Psalm 5 doesn't just have to do with all those wicked people around David. Paul, from the perspective uh, from the perspective of the post-resurrection life, that is after Christ has been resurrected and he sees Scripture more clearly, he sees Psalm 5 as having something to say about you and me. Here's how he does it. I'm going to just go into the last part of his argument in, Psalm, uh, in Romans 3. He writes this, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, and here now he's going to start quoting a bunch of passages from the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then verse 13. Here he quotes Psalm 5, 9. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Here Paul quotes Psalm 5, 9, not to say something about David's enemies, but to say something about every human. We are infected with the same sin that David is praying against in Psalm 5. David is infected with the same sin that he's praying against in Psalm 5. And Paul pulls that out of this psalm to make a sweeping argument about sin and humanity. And he concludes the argument this way. Maybe you've heard it. Romans 3.23, he comes to the end here and says, For all have sinned and 
all and fall short of the glory of God. There it is. I didn't mind Psalm 5 until Paul pulled it into an argument that has to do with me. I'm also part of the wicked. My tongue is full of deceit. I try to live by lies. I am always making the attempt to disconnect from reality so I can do what I want when I want to, uh, undeterred by any limitation God may have put on me. Here's the thing I love about Romans 3.23. When he comes to this point where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is he doesn't end there. Check out what he writes next. This is so important. Paul continues, after here pulling Psalm 5 with other scriptures, he comes to this point and says, all are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did it to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I am not righteous. You are not righteous, but Christ is. And there's the Gospel. That Christ took on our sin. Our sin was imputed. It, was, it covered Him and paid the penalty of that sin so that then we are imputed. We are covered with Christ's righteousness. So in that way, I, I am actually numbered among the righteous. Because there's one righteous. There's Christ. And if you're with Him, you get all the righteousness thrown in. And Christ sees you, He sees the righteousness of Christ. So, when we come into the presence of God, we don't come in saying, look how righteous I am. No, what we do is we say, it is your righteousness. It's your righteousness, and it's your righteousness alone that I now stand in your presence. Interestingly, David said the same thing. That's something. David says the same thing. The gospel message in kernel form is sitting right there in Psalm 5. Notice how he said it. Check this out. But I, David says, but I, by your great love, come into your house. Isn't it like David brings some, some really good behavior into God's presence? How many times have you heard people say, oh, I hope I'm good enough to get into heaven? You can just go ahead and just disabuse people of that and say, you're not. Like, you're not good enough. Do you think I'll be good enough like, to get into heaven when I die? No. No, you won't. So if any of you think you've got to work really hard to get into heaven, like just you've already failed. So either just give up on the whole thing or come to the one who is righteous. That's, so David already knows it's by your love that I come into your house. And then verse 8, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. David already knows here. It's his righteousness. And what we know as Christians with the perspective of the cross and resurrection as ascension, is that His righteousness is bound up in the obedience of His Son and it's applied to us by His Spirit. So let me take all that and summarize it. Here's what I want to say as we move in just a second into some application. There are the wicked and the righteous. And it's because of God's righteousness that David can trust Him no matter what happens to his life, in his life. He will be blessed and God will protect him. He is sure of that. And also, because of God's righteousness, 
David can stand firm against arrogant people who reject reality and spread deception. He stands against them. He prays against them. But he knows even as he prays, as he groans, as he laments, he knows that that prayer comes to God because of God's righteousness. Nothing on his own. And I think that's where we need to start with some application for us. So here we go. Many of you received a text message this week from the church. Really, it was from me. Um, that we'd be talking about a real sensitive issue. Well, here's, here's where we begin that conversation. And by conversation, I mean me talking to you. Um, <laughs> we say conversation. We really don't mean conversation. Here it is. Here's the first thing I think we need, the, the application point. We stand firm against those who reject reality and spread deception. We have to stand against those who are rejecting reality and spreading deception. Now listen, there's a lot of deception in our world. And there are any number of places where we could go for examples of deception in our world. It just so happens that right now in the month of June in the United States, that deception is being put in front of us in multiple colors. What I'm talking about is Pride Month. Right now, the LGBTQ plus movement has taken over the month of June and it is being spread in every, in every crevice of corporate America in commercial life. Here's just an example. I don't know. I don't, do you know a company? I mean, you do. There are some that have not. But there are multiple companies across the country, and these are global also uh, in scale, many of them, that have taken on the rainbow, that is the pride flag, for their logo. Just right here. Some of you may even use some of these products. I know I do. I mean, Spotify and YouTube and LinkedIn, um, Facebook here, MasterCard. This is just an example. I mean, golly, when I searched images of a collage of Pride corporate logos, I mean, I could have pulled an image with 50 logos. You just wouldn't be able to see them. So this is something put in front of us. It's not like I just stepped into Psalm 5 and thought, you know what? I really want to take on the LGBTQ plus community. Like, I'm just tired. And I think I'm going to, I know they're being quiet, but I'm going to make something of this. Like, I'm just going to cause a stir. No. This was, been, this was put in front of us. So much so that when we turn on the TV very early in the morning, because Micah gets up very early in the morning, while I'm trying to read, you know this is a thing for me, so I just continue to confess to you my my struggle with this at times. I'm trying to read, and then Micah gets up. I'm like, Micah, I'm trying to read. Go back to bed. He says, no, I'm not going back to bed. Give me chocolate milk. And I want Paw Patrol. And so we say, okay, you get Paw Patrol. And here's the, here's the, here's the logo. Here's the icon on Roku for Paramount+. Plus. It's the mountain with the flag. And you know what my kids ask me? What's that flag? Disney. Disney+. Plus. Main banner on Disney Plus, the street, their, their massive streaming service, banner across the top, Pride Collection. All the movies that deal with the LGBTQ plus community. And, and just to be clear, Disney's not fighting against the movement, okay? They're promoting it from a variety of different angles. And so this has been put in front of us. And so I feel like I can either ignore it, or, I can understand that the Scripture still speaks to us in our day. And I think it speaks directly to this. And I don't still think it's just LGBTQ+, like, just like as a whole. 
Because as a whole, this is a movement that is teaching people that you can do whatever you feel like doing. Not only can you do it, you should affirm it, and we should celebrate it. Actually, we'll celebrate it so much that we'll use a term that historically has been considered a vice. We're actually going to now call it a virtue. We're going to call it pride. This is about as clear an example as we're going to get on this scale of evil being called good and good being called evil. This is, this is Isaiah 5.21 right in front of us. But not only is it, is it females who are attracted to females and, we're, and being told, do whatever you feel is who you are. Well, now we're being told that biological reality is actually a myth. You see, for me, the, the most glaring piece of what we're finding in this year particularly is the transgender movement. Because here is a clear example of reality. Reality rooted in our bodies, and we are disregarding it. We are being told to disregard it. To just, to just, to just, to, to live by a different standard. A different standard than reality. That is a dangerous game. It is a dangerous game that we have to deal with. So let me give you a definition, and we're, I'm going to pull this from a, uh, 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 what we might call a, an organization on the left. I don't mean to be pejorative there, I just mean an organization on the left, the Campaign for Human Rights. Here's the definition they give for transgender. It's a little longer, but I think it gets at it in full uh, for what we need it for. The word transgender or trans is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity is different from the sex assigned to us at birth. Some trans people identify as trans men or trans women, while others may describe themselves as non-binary, genderqueer, gender non-conforming, agender, bigender, or other identities that reflect their personal experience. Some of us take hormones or have surgery as part of our transition, while others may change our pronouns or appearance. Let me take that and, and, and just boil that down, what I think is happening, into just this clear statement. So I just tried to write it in just a couple sentences so that I didn't get long-winded on how I wanted to boil this down. And then, I got, and then we'll want to just, just jump off from right here. Here's, what I, here's how I'd summarize that. The trans movement is cultivating a culture of deception that teaches people, especially young people, and I think we are all are very clear on this, Children as young as three, four, and five years old. You wouldn't trust them with a knife, but all of a sudden they're able to tell who they are. No way. No way. A culture of deception that teaches people, especially young people, that they are who they feel they are, regardless of biological reality. This movement is a bold example of humans living by lies in order to try to live how they want to live, unhindered by limitations. This is the story of the Garden of Eden all over again. It just has a massive uh, medical uh, uh, industrial complex behind it that can actually change certain things on the physical body to make this seem like a reality. But no matter how much you step away from reality, it doesn't become reality because you feel like it's reality. That, that, that goes for anybody. You can feel like gravity doesn't exist and then jump off the bridge and find out all of a sudden it does. You can feel like food has no calories 
until your belly tells you it does. You can think alcohol doesn't affect you one bit until you get behind the wheel and are pulled over and given a DUI or worse. The trans movement is a movement teaching people to disconnect from reality. And it's teaching them that they are the creators of reality. This is exactly what Satan told Eve and Adam in the garden. You determine what is real. You do what feels good. And you know where that got them? It got them disconnected from the source of life. This is the way this is going. And here's, here's the challenge I feel like is in front of us. And I know this is a sensitive topic. What do you do when a five-year-old says they feel different than what their body, what their body is? Well, you're going to have to navigate that. But what we do not do is we say, well, you, well, then you are whatever you believe you are. And right now we have certain categories. We, we, say, they can, we say they can be, um, we, we say a, a, a biological boy can feel like a girl and then they must be a girl. But what if I stand, stood here and said, I feel in this moment like a, like a Latino black man. Well, I'm just feeling that way right now. And I, I'm feeling like a Native American, George. I'm just feeling it. I'm just feeling it. So I would appreciate if you would call me a Native American for the rest of the day. Please. That makes no sense. I don't care how many times I feel like a black man. You're never going to see me as a black man. And I, let me tell you who's not going to agree that I'm a black man. Most people with dark skin are going to think I'm a black man. My point is, we never should train a child that they can be whatever they think they are, as if their biology and any other reality doesn't exist. That sets them in motion for a life towards destruction. And what's sad is that we are actually now medically affirming children and others, allowing them to affirm this in a way that you can't reverse it. This is dangerous ground. And so, so where we find ourselves then as Christians is what happens in that day when we want to be people of truth and reality and we call people by what they are. You are a male, but we are told if you do that, that's an aggression, that's an assault, and legally, legally, you can be you can be punished. And you might say, well, that's a fantasy world. I, I, I can say what I want. i got free speech. Our federal government is taking strides towards the day when you have to call people by what they say they are. Where you have to affirm the reality they have created or you are, you are some, you, you have done some violence. You could be charged with assault. Now, where I'm about to step is a place I have never stepped before in a sermon. And so I am very aware of what I'm about to do. I'm about to quote from a sitting president. And I understand in our day, I understand in our day that that is highly political. And if I am anything, I am passionate that this pulpit, I know I don't have a pulpit, but just go with me, go with the metaphor, that this pulpit will never be politicized. It will never go partisan. I know there are people in this, in this church that have voted with the Democratic Party and some for the Republican Party. I know that. We, in any election, we're not, not going to begin to, uh, to become, I'm not going to uh, train you how to vote politically. 
But when a political party or the representative of a political party, any political party, says what our sitting president said, we have to call it out. So if one day a Republican president says something like this, we're going to have to call it out. If one day the Green Party gets elected, we're going to have to call it out if they say something stupid. This, this is one of the clearest examples of calling evil good and good evil. And I didn't know what else to do but call it out. Because this sets us on the road to being forced by law to, to recognize something that is not real as real. And we as Christians will have to stand there. And we will stand for truth. We will have to stand like David stood in our prayers and in our stances. And I don't know exactly how that's all going to look. But this is the road line. President Biden, a few months ago, he made a proclamation for Transgender Day of Visibility, March 31st, 2022. Here is some of his proclamation. In the past year, hundreds of transgender bills in states were proposed across America. These bills are wrong. Efforts to criminalize supportive medical care for transgender kids, to ban transgender children from playing sports, and to outlaw discussing LGBTQI plus people in schools undermine their humanity and corrode our, nation, our nation's values. And here's, here's where it goes. My entire administration is committed to ensuring that transgender people enjoy the freedom and equality that are promised to everyone in America. We also celebrate the parents, teachers, coaches, doctors, and their allies who affirm the identities of their transgender children and help these young people reach their potential. If this is allowed to play out into the legislatures, that means if Ava tells me she's a boy and wants, and wants hormone blockers so that she can transition into a boy, I, as a parent, will have no legal standing to stop it. That is evil. And when we disconnect from reality, we start to disconnect in every other area of life. So this isn't just to like pick on, uh, in some way, the LGBTQ plus community, the Pride Month, trans, or in any way, President Biden, specifically. But it is to give us a very clear example of where the wicked are making ground, calling what is evil good. And we have to be very clear as Christians, there is nothing good about this. Do we have to have compassion and there's nuance when we're dealing with individuals who are walking through this? Absolutely. But when you get to the level of the government that is to protect the innocent, we can't go that far as Christians. This is in the context of Psalm 5 and Romans 3. Alright. Now, all of that is about everything on the outside of our hearts. But here's the second point of application we can't miss. As much as we might say about everything happening out there, happening in the federal government, happening uh, in, in the world, in, in, in corporate America, you and I never forget this. The second point. The gospel is greater than sin. Even our sin. Two things going on there. As much as you might be discouraged about the trend, the trajectory of this culture, do not think God is surprised or God will not get the last word. He will. The gospel wins. 
second thing of that application is never forget that the same sin, the same wickedness that is driving this, this movement to affirm sin, that is also in your heart. It's also in my heart. They don't just need the gospel. I need the gospel. And never forget that. So as we stand against sin, never forget you got it in your heart too. And so we always put ourselves in front of the cross and we remember, thank you God for your righteousness. Never, ever, ever stop, stop putting the cross in front of your eyes. Never. You need the gospel just as much. And so do I. Romans 5, 8, I feel like we've got to read it. While we were still sinners. Still sinners. Who was the sinner? You were the sinner. I was While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's really good news. So never forget the gospel. Next step, we'll end here. Next step. Read Psalm 5 every day this week. Better just read Psalm 5. Uninterrupted, just read it. Just listen to it. Psalm 5. Remember these two things. Sin is real. As David calls out for God's judgment and justice against sin, you and I got to be doing the same thing. I am calling out God bring justice to the LGBTQ plus movement and all the powered wheels. I am calling for justice, God. Stop this movement that is calling evil good. Stop this. But as I read Psalm 5, I never forget this second point. The gospel is greater. It's greater at the end of the day, to the end of the world, and into the world to come, and it is greater in my heart. And I need the gospel. So Psalm 5 reminds me, as much as I look outward, I better be looking inward and evaluating where's my heart. So read Psalm 5, and remember, sin is real, and the gospel is greater. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And although it puts us in uncomfortable positions, we need you, and we need your righteousness, and therefore we lean on you. We pray this in the name of Christ.